0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Magic Beans podcast. This is episode 138. I'll be your host tonight. I am Chewy. I am joined by Polly Waffle. How are you today, mate?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: Very, very well. I'm actually really excited to introduce a very, very special guest uh, to the podcast. First time on the podcast, but it's fair to say gets spoken about on the every single podcast uh, we have pat from josh and pat's mtg bizarre how are you pat
2: not too bad howdy howdy boys
0: thank you very much for joining us so might be the 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 astute listeners may be thinking oh, we've got we've got josh for i've got pat from josh and pats and we've got polly waffle who loves buying magic cards so we've got a premier sellard premier uh, buyer of magic cards. We're actually going to do a little bit of an introduction, I'm not going to go too in depth because my brain will explode, but a little bit of an introduction to magic finance and, uh, what it is to, you know, buy and sell magic cards as a bit of a commodity. So, uh, something that's near and dear to your guys' heart and something I'm very interested in. Uh, but before we do get into our main topic, Pat, I would love you. To, to do the spiel could you tell us about josh and pat's mtg Bazaar?
2: yeah look i i guess i can talk about myself uh josh and pat's uh mtg Bazaar is a facebook auction page group coming up on its five-year anniversary actually wow next month will mark five years um it's a one-stop shop for all things magic uh we have claim lots around new sets uh we have auction lots as the name suggests there are win it now lots where cards are uh, at a set price, and uh, the lots go up at the same time every day, so it's a fun little race to grab what you want. Uh, it's all with one auctioneer. Everything runs out of my house, uh, so you can combine wins, one place to pay, easy shipping. Uh, really, the idea is it should be a very simple and seamless process to buy cards for the game that you love and play. So,
0: Absolutely. and uh, So, yeah, check out jpmtgbazaar.com.au, get bidding, and tell them that Pat sent you. Ah uh, this time around rather than the beans, <laughs> right so I I, I I like it uh, so yeah, five years so i I think i I probably got on board during your first year some months in and yeah started to you know pick up pick up a few cards here and there and then uh, I got the return address on the back and I'm like, oh, you live close to my mum so uh, <laughs> we. I am a uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mum's just like next town over in, in Juney, which is, which is cool. So, uh, what's good about that is Wagga's pretty central to some of the major centers, like city population centers around. So shipping does go pretty quickly. And as you said, single full-time auctioneer, which means the communication and everything is second to none. So that's great. Uh, we love Josh and Pats. So you've spoken about yourself a little bit from a business perspective. This is the first time you've been on the cast. Hopefully it won't be the last, but uh, as is the tradition of, of the Beans, we, we like to get our magic origins stories up and uh, into people's earholes. So could you tell us a little bit about your, your magic history? Because you're not just a business person in the magic world. No, you are no, a magic no. player.
2: I, I, uh, I started playing, gosh, when I started playing magic, probably 97 or 98. Uh, We had an LGS in America. Now, LGSs in America were oftentimes uh, old sports card places. So this is sort of after the junk wax era where baseball cards crashed. So a lot of stores started to dabble in nerd culture as a way to keep the doors open. Uh, So I grew up in Mount Union, Pennsylvania. So the neighboring town in Huntingdon had a little LGS and I would go up there on Saturdays to play Magic. What format we played, I didn't you know, I didn't really know. I just wanted to cast War Elf into turn three Emperor Crocodile because I thought that was as good as it got. That's my kind of magic. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, I but I we all start with the big green guys, right? <laughs> and we all, we all Dude, start there. Yeah. The first time I played like a Blastoderm against someone, I went, I am cheating at magic. This thing's out turn three, Hash Shroud. What are you going to do about this? But um,
0: <laughs> Game over, man.
2: Uh, I actually briefly left Magic once I started playing to chase Pokemon for probably like a year, but then I got back into Magic. And, like, my first drafts I really remember fondly were Invasion Block. And it was actually kind of funny. Like, I did very well, even though I was very young and not as skilled, because uh, while drafting these, like, really greedy multicolored decks, like, turns out that was good, and I did it really well at an early age. So, it's probably like my first four end, like, when I started. I won a draft. And these are back in the days when drafts are, like, just eight fours, you know, and you shoe up, single E you know, and you're losing and then you're just watching Magic for a few hours. And, like, I remember winning one of the first Invasion drafts I did and thinking... I had, like, double Anavolvers in my deck or something. And I am thinking, like, this this is the best. Um, but played a lot. Um, played all the way up until I went to college. And then um, ended up taking a bit of a break and then got back into it for a few years. Drafted on MTGO a lot, especially during Zendikar era. I remember casting so many orin Reef survivalists into Umara Raptors. Um, both in paper and... Uh, online um is i'm like getting flashbacks
0: I... pat wow yeah, yeah I, I drafted yeah. a lot in that set as well that was a great draft set
2: and um yeah this is like probably when i first got like you know you ended up with dual like not dual saw uh, fetch lands right and i remember trading fetch lands in to be able to draft more because i didn't really play much constructed at that time a little bit but not a lot but um i definitely would turn my my fetch lands and limited into like cash or credit to keep drafting and um whether it be online with bots or in person with the store, but played a lot. Um, Sold out when I moved to Australia in 2012 and then got back into it. Uh, It was 2015. Uh, At the time, it was... I went down to Albury for the weekend. My ex was having her hen's night, and this is when I met Josh and everyone. I went down to play uh, a pre-release, Zendikar... um, What was it? Battle for Zendikar. And so I got to play pre-release that weekend, I remember one of my decks had Drana and Undergrowth Champion. There was like 32 people there. I hadn't played in three years. I ended up finishing second. I remember Josh and all I'm thinking, like, who is this guy? He just showed up and, like, actually played pretty well. And, you know, I got to, like, just talk and meet. And, yeah, Josh from my business. is where He and I met. And um, and I'd go down to Aubrey every week on Fridays to play Magic in the evening. Like, I'd, I'd go down and uh, I'd see clients for the business I was working on along the way. And then I would play Magic on Friday nights. And so they what got me back into it. And I haven't really left after that stint. Um A lot of my time playing when I was younger, like I said, it was a lot of Limited, Uh, but what really got me into it, yeah, was when I got back into it in Australia, and yeah, it kind of stuck around, and I I really always loved Limited, it's probably my favorite format, but I definitely always, like, aspired for Pro Tours, so, like, once I got back into it, I convinced Josh and them a few months later, hey, we start traveling for PPTQs and stuff, and that's when I got them into traveling for that, and it'd be me, him, Rory and Mitch, two of the other Albury boys and um we'd usually hit the road together and uh it's just a lot of fun and i really enjoyed it and um yeah some of the some of the better experiences of my life and i qualified for quite a few rptqs during like that sort of window of time in like 2016 17 18 i was I remember, like,
0: yeah i remember there was regular facebook video updates during that time where you were like i you know i I made the top eight, and you know I got to top four and and, and things. So, yeah, you kind of got known as uh, you know a uh, a little bit of a, a a traveling gun, if you like, uh, around yeah, the, the regions. Yeah, well,
2: we call them our grinders, right? And um, I That's wasn't right. like the best. I was I was good. wasn't wasn't fantastic, but was good. Good enough to like qualify. And being in Wagga, as you said, like I could drive four and a half hours to either play in Sydney for the weekend or to play in Melbourne for the weekend. So I'd usually play and then overnight. Uh, but I did qualify in Canberra on like three of my occasions at, at Jolt Games. In fact, every time, uh, so we nice. would travel to Canberra for the qualifiers too. And um, but yeah, like like lot lot of fun. Like I I really have good memories of that era of Magic. And um, Josh and I would do a lot of testing online. We worked on Etherworks Marvel like for ages. We put so many reps in that deck before an RPTQ I went to, and the meta in the room was like perfect for it. And it just didn't fire, but. Uh, I, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the the travel. I enjoyed friends. Uh, I enjoyed playing Magic. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of like my origin story of playing Magic. Probably, though, like as a kid, just going to an LGS, right? And just yeah,
0: that's where we all started, right? Well, no, Chris didn't start with that. He started with us uh, saying you should do this thing. Uh, but, yeah, it's... I guess it's a... Do you remember the first time you met Pat at all, Chris? Because I, I think the first time I met him in person was at a PTQ you were on an adjacent table and we had a brief conversation about you know the event or something I do remember you had maybe Jeskai Planeswalkers in play so it was not it was just pre-pandemic I believe that was that
2: was 2019 yeah that would have been either Sydney or Melbourne um yeah I played Jeskai Planeswalkers those weekends I I did I did I did finish undefeated in the Swiss on one of those weekends in Sydney and then Got knocked out against, uh, what did I have to play against the first round? I played against someone who was on, oh yeah, Four-Color Command the dread horde, And that was a oh, terrible right, matchup for that yeah. deck. Like, yeah. just got outvalued. Uh, but, yeah, and then, yeah, I think you would have met me probably at the Melbourne one then. I would've, I would've yeah, yeah, my I mystery. think so. Uh, yeah. And we, yeah, we tested so much for her. She was on this gruel Aggro Ilharg deck, which wasn't even necessarily good in the meta, but she actually had a winning in round seven. Uh, oh she wow! Was like five and one, yeah. All she had to do was win. And she could have ID'd in the top eight, and she was so proud of herself. Like I said, we tested the deck so much; it wasn't like the best deck in the format. People just weren't ready for that. But then, of course, in true fashion, day two we had to play each other like round two, or <laughs> round <laughs> three. It always happens <laughs> with the beans. Yeah, oh, yeah you travel right. to an event and you just play against your mates. That's <laughs> like Josh and I's record against each other. He's beaten me at FNM like almost every time. But whenever we're on the road playing an event, I'm like almost undefeated against him but like yeah, shorty and i are like that
0: shorty and i like that when when i'm a bit casual about it he always beats me but when i'm you know when it's actually a big event i'm, I'm there
1: so yeah
0: have we chris have we have you and i played against each other in an event i, I think we have at least once right
1: we might have played once I, I i usually don't get paired up with someone at an event it's always you shorty or cracker so um i'm i'm due you've dodged that bullet so far Yeah.
0: Nice. Uh, So you've mentioned um, Josh a a, a fair bit and yeah. So what, what led you guys to starting up your, uh, your business?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So Josh, um, Josh, Josh auctioned to Rob's back in the day and um, they were moving to a commission model and and Josh decided he didn't like the idea. Um, Didn't think it would be, he'd be able to afford to be able to keep doing it. And so he pitched me at the time. I was just like a backpack trader of sorts. I like I like the spec on cards, right? I definitely enjoyed the speculation side. Like, it doesn't matter what I've done. You know, I played World of Warcraft a lot. I was like a really into gold making. Like, you know, I've always enjoyed the financial aspect of of games I'm playing with. Um, Just because that's the way my brain works, I guess. But yeah, yeah. Josh and I tried. uh, We made an offer to buy it. Actually, Uh, didn't work. And then Josh convinced me we should launch our own page. And I at the time had never really dealt with with auctions. I'd only reactivated a facebook account maybe nine months previously just to trade cards on even um but i just was like kind of that dude that would show up at, at at events with my suitcase full of like sorted cards and be trying to trade with people uh so josh josh convinced me to to do this with him and um i was like you know i had my own reasons i i definitely like had seen what i had considered you know I, there was this one trip me and my my friends in waga made to to canberra and um one of my friends just opened a foil chandra, chandra torture defiance and um we went there and he we just wanted to sell it for some credit to like put some cards into some other decks and we go to an lgs there and he gets offered i think 16 dollars for it and it's worth like 45 at the time i remember how how struck he was he didn't expect to get like full money but you know, he's hoping to get like say 30 dollars for it and that was like one of the reasons i really got into trading is like i i don't know i would had a lot of like people tell me these bad experiences with like just getting offered pennies in the dollar and I don't know. I I came from America where when I did play Magic, I loved how liquid cards were. I loved that like the market was like sort of toward equilibrium. Yep. And that like, you know, if you bought cards or invested in cards, you could always sell them and you, you weren't going to get full full value, but you were going to get a fair shake and um I had a few experiences myself at GPs and stuff like getting not fair shakes either and it, it helped uh, push me into like wanting to to do more in the space to help provide other people a fair shake after Seeing so much of what I considered wasn't good enough.
0: Yeah, I think everybody's had a a bad experience, and we obviously won't mention any stores or chains or anything. But uh, you know, where some offers will be made, and you you just know, even without going through and comparing to you know whatever the market standard websites are, you you just feel like you're being you know they're they're doing what they can to take advantage. So uh, coming in and trying to add some honesty you know, as a magic consumer, I, I love having that presence, uh, in the, uh, in the economy. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, so, uh, you, you are now, you know, you, you've got multiple auctions up every, every night and it's kind of like a, a, a seven day a week, 365 days a year, just about, isn't it? It's yep, the... yep.
2: It is. There's like, uh, there's not auctions on Christmas day. There are boxing day auctions Yeah, <laughs> <And laughs> there are weekend auctions, but yeah, nowadays, like, so when Josh and I started, it was just like kind of a side hustle thing. And we would do week on week off. We actually split weeks, but within like probably six months of launching, we realized, hey, let's do week on week off. So he'd auction a week, I'd auction a week. Um, we did that at the time I was studying, uh, working on my research, other things. Um, by the time 2021, 2020 hits, uh, COVID hits, Josh decides he wants out. Uh, my PhD. I lose funding, not not for my PhD, but for like all the ancillary things I was doing. I lost like my paper grading. I lost. Um, I was I was working at the university as an academic. Um, I wasn't paper grading. I wasn't teaching anymore. I wasn't doing casual research. Like the uni's just shut down all funding. So I uh, I transitioned to doing this full time in 2020, I guess, in April roughly. And um, but up to that point, I guess it was a side hustle for me for two and a half years, just a way to put uh, food on the table, uh, while I was uh, continuing my, my studies and research really, because I decided to go back to uni and get a second degree. So,
0: wow. Yeah. So that's a, that's actually, it's a pretty cool story, like starting, you know, in a separate country and then up ending up in, you know, in, in Wagga Wagga in you know, country, New South Wales, and now being, you know, one of the, the, the premier, uh, sites, uh, auction sites in the country. And, you know, Sponsors of uh, you know really high quality podcasts and and leaks, so uh, I appreciate that absolutely. So I'm always happy to give back to the community too. <laughs> uh, I,
2: see you, I see you nicely. Uh, are you talking about yourself there? With those? Kidding, kidding, kidding. Shameless plugging. <laughs>
0: that's right. That's right. Uh, so I guess let's let's jump into our uh, our topic. And you talked about you know some sort of the liquidity and the the uh the value of cards are something that you've always uh kind of had an eye on so we'll yeah talk about uh, the mtg finance side of things uh, and i guess I'll, I'll start off the topic with you know this is not going for our listeners this is not going to be a you know a snapshot in uh you know you should buy you know fetch lands now or you should buy you know a reserve list card or sell one at the moment you know we want this to be a little bit like our evergreen series where it's a, a bit of an intro where you can come back to it and or if you've got a friend who might maybe be interested in the topic you can refer them to this and you know as i said in the intro uh you know not many people that i know at least uh buy and sell as many magic cards as you too do so uh it's a uh you know you are you're the experts uh in this field so i will uh i'll I'll do a little intro and i'll pretty much just let you guys talk about it i think so uh pat you gave your bit of an intro into the uh you know how you came about um you know backpack trading i think is the term that you you said but but uh chris i know you have had a look at some uh, you know some of the collectibility, and uh, you've got you know some some high end cards in your collection, and and you have bought and sold some cards a little bit over the over the time. What drew you to that side of things, or was it more you liked you just like the, the the collecting and not parting with cards? Where do you sit on that scale?
1: Yes, um, yeah. Look, I I got really fascinated with the game for starters, just um like purely from a gameplay perspective i remember talking to you and cracker and shorty and just being really fascinated with the whole tcg concept it was something that i always liked the idea of but just never kind of took the plunge um and i suppose once i got into it i i started to i started to like the collectability and probably similar to pat um you know the fact that i could get into a game but i had an out as well and yes you wouldn't you know cash out your full value but um, you kind of didn't lose anything either. And I suppose I was weighing up the cost of that with a bunch of other things that I was kind of interested in at the time. And I thought it doesn't matter whether it's like a sport or any other hobby. I kind of looked at it and thought if I invest a bunch of money into gear, it's probably not going to be worth a whole lot, you know, once I'm finished, you know, having fun with the hobby. But Magic seemed to retain value. I had a quick look at, you know, some card prices and some historical data and that kind of stuff. And it just looked, yeah, it looked like a, a safe way to go in, dabble, have some fun. And if I got over it, I could always cash out of it, um, you know, uh, reasonably safely. So I suppose that kind of got me looking at um, at card prices uh, and just kind of more out of curiosity, observing the market and seeing how things fluctuated and monitoring standard cycles and listening to pros and cards that were good and card assessment and all that kind of thing. But that, w- that was sort of where my interest I suppose, sparked in in MTG Finance.
0: Okay, Uh, I I think that's great. And you mentioned, you know, monitoring prices. Uh, I guess you'd start with like, you know, the big big ones like the Star City Games and things like that as a um, card kingdom, whatever those other, the bigger retailers are, and just kind of get a sense on that. And I think a lot of those websites have like the price history available for a lot of their cards as well. So there is some good information out there if you, you know, you are interested in that, you know, the historical data side of things. Uh, is there anything else that you've done? I'll, I'll start with I'll start with you, Chris, but is there anything else you've done as far as being able to track that information? Because you can jump onto a website and go, okay, this card's selling for this much, but, you know, is there a way that you've been able to, you know, find or any tools that you've created yourself to be able to track that, uh, that value.
1: Yeah. I look at early early days. I started very, very manually, you know, just be cross-checking thinking like five, five, six years ago, everyone used to talk about TCG mid. That was always the thing or like SCG one-to-one. And obviously that's kind of shifted now. It's like CK tends to be a bit of a benchmark since the SCG website got a bit dodge. Um, but yeah, I I would use like TCG mid or even TCG low. If I was, you know, checking out the, the bottom end of the of, of the price pool. Um, and I used to just kind of manually track and check in on cards periodically. Like that, that was literally the starting point. And once I started buying more cardboard, (laughs) I, I thought it would be interesting to start tracking it a little bit more broadly or over a longer period of time. Um, and just checking in on snapshots every now and then you weren't kind of picking up on fluctuations and, and ups and downs. So I, I ended up making like a spreadsheet and I used that for quite a while. I've still got it actually that, kind of crawls um, data from goldfish and card kingdom and a couple of other places. And, you know, it just lets me track card prices over time. Um, And so that, that was a, that was probably the first, I don't know, personal messing around with a kind of card tracking system. Um, I've also used some online tools. There's like an MTG collection builder. It was something that Shorty actually put me onto, which has been like a pretty hands-off easy to use sort of service that's not overly accurate, but it's fine. Um, and I find that's like a super easy online tool. So if people are interested in something that's literally free and publicly available, that's been quite a good one, um, yeah, to mess around with.
0: Nice. Okay. Yeah, that, that's good. And not, not everybody's got your level of Microsoft Excel skills. Uh, so having the, the free online tool might be an option for people just trying to dip their toe in the water. Uh, and Pat, like you you physically move a lot of a lot of cards uh again don't want to give away any trade secrets but uh do you have some software that you use to to track prices and and things like you know you, you set prices on on things on your win it now uh posts uh as well as you know i'm sure you'd have a, a an understanding or a, an ambition when it comes to your auctions you know this card should sell for this much
2: yeah, so I mean, <clears throat> to start with, like, I look at uh, speculating as something different from the retail arm of my business. Um, I possibly was speculating while operating auctions in like 17, 18, 19. In more recent years, like, as I've understood that I've evolved into a retailer, uh, speculation I think is something that happens counterintuitively to that. Um, there, there are cards that like I think are going to go up. But the reality is, is I still have a maybe not a requirement, but like an obligation to consumers to provide that card. Um, so I've sort of uh, actually segmented off some money that allows me to do all my speculating now. But I think like there's some low tech and high tech ways to do it. One of the most common ways to do it, that's low tech, that I think I think actually good, and I think people should do, is whenever you buy something because you think it's going to go up, uh, put it in in a in a penny sleeve, the copies. Um, You know, write write the date on it, write the price on it, and put it aside and don't look at it for six months. Um, I think if you're trying to track things and looking at all the data, the way it oscillates, I think it can drive you insane. Uh, unless you have a high degree of understanding of handling that data. Like, do you understand that, you know, summer is sluggish for sales and like a 10 to 15% decrease in price is normal? Or do you understand that there's like a post-Christmas sort of haze? Like, there's some temporal data that happens every year no matter what and then you have to look through the lens of that on top of the release schedule on top of you know um, set
0: popularity when, things like that when are big, as well? when are big yeah.
2: things happening like this year you look at a bunch of cards and go look how well they're doing it's like well there's a there's a pioneer qualifiers are back so that's that's impacting the market in a way that like if you just looked at 2022 without like understanding why you wouldn't be able to really um fully grasp why you're seeing the data points you're seeing So I think like some of the lower tech ways of doing it are quite good. There's a bunch of different software out there that lets you track it. Uh, Some of them, some of the ones that you pay for will even like um, subscription services will let you like look at every, they scrape every buy list for you and tell you where to sell the card for the best price, where you can buy it for the cheapest price. Some of those exist on a commercial level. Uh, I don't actually mess around with a lot of them. Um, I'm so in the data that sometimes it's good to have, but I'm just doing this every day, 16 hours a day, that just doesn't matter. Um, I'm just like in tune with it all because it's like I work seven days a week and all I do is magic when I work. So, um, but like some of those tools are very good. And, um, I think, I think though, again, like if you're just starting out, like, yeah, if you buy four copies of a card, cause you like it. Yeah. Like, like, like just make a note of it, but I wouldn't like check on it daily. Just check on it like six months from then. Like, and TCG player is really good now because they have giant graphs of all their data. Every sales price is public. These are big initiatives that I think Dan Bach has pushed since he's been a part of it, And is because eBay has all these issues with, like, fake listings, people not paying for cards. Like, eBay's kind of become, like, a really worrisome data point. Like, TCG Player, because they're so open and honest with their data and they're a marketplace, is very good. And I think CK is really good on the flip side because they're a retailer. Uh, they have a data scientist on staff, so the data they're presenting has been massaged or, or is looked at more from, like, a they're able to they're, they're, sometimes their projections appear there and it's not just market trends now so if you're observing Deltas does differences in price between TCG player and CK you can make some inferences as to why why you think those exist um, and, and those are some interesting points to deal with so
0: okay uh, that yeah that is uh, that's some great advice and uh, a really good insight um, you did mention you know like Pop them in a sleeve with the the date and and put them somewhere for for six months. So, one of the things that you know, I wanted to talk about as a little bit of a side thing to to this, but you know, if you are speculating on cards, you do need to store them. You need to store them safely. Uh, now, if you look at my magic collection, you guys would probably uh, you, you your eyes would go a little bit twitchy where you know I've got. a a bunch of the 5,000 count boxes stacked on top of one another in a cupboard, a bunch of like old fat pack boxes. And uh, at the moment I've got three half built decks on my desk in front of me with all of the maybe cards and, Mismatching Look, this sounds sleeves. sounds fine
2: to me. You've seen <laughs> what my storage room looks like. I have no room to judge anyone else.
0: <laughs> so, well, I mean, yeah, you've got a, a, a room for storage, right? So, uh, you, you work from home. So, one of the one of the bedrooms is um, yeah dedicated to yeah just Correct. shelves and storage. Dedicated so, one that get
2: magic storage, and I also now have a uh, I have basically warehouse space. I have a I have a storage locker uh, basically I use as well. Wow, so longer term yep. things. So.
0: Okay, that's um, and a a lot of your storage would be, uh, I I assume, quite temporary. You know, you you'd buy some product and you know buy some sealed product, crack it, or buy some collections and sort it, and then um, sell them. Uh, well, so I, yeah,
2: I've started moving into like holding sealed. There's more mid and long term investments, so that's why part of the reason the storage lockers appeared, like. I have, like, a pallet of Modern Horizons 1 sitting in there, for example. And, um, wow.
0: I look forward to seeing those boxes uh, up on the auction, uh, the auction but site. Like not, would like, be...
2: Those are things I, I yeah, maybe I'd put them in claim lots, but they're not even necessarily for auction. I just, like, I have I found that, like, as I've tried to, like, invest in different things, like, what what you saw in that room there is usually just working stock, I guess you would call it. Like, yeah, yeah. Every set when you mass open, like, you know, 300-plus set booster boxes, all that bulk just ends up getting stored away uh in in black 100 liter tubs with three 5000 count boxes in it that are labeled like that's all i think has happened so at this point i have like over 100 of those tubs just in storage uh no game plan on what happens to them but uh we'll figure it out later i guess uh, uh, you know. maybe
0: you can use it for insulation in a roof one day or something <laughs> gosh it's, yeah, <laughs> it's so funny yeah, exactly so, uh, Chris, I, I know you've got a, a, a dedicated space, and, and you've got uh, something I've been meaning to purchase. Where they're the same uh, material as the five thousand card uh, storage boxes, but they've got like cardboard drawers that you can um, pull out. So that's a that's a pretty good way to store. Is that something that you have kind of moved to almost exclusively?
1: Yeah, I um, so I. I come from an interesting place in that like I started from nothing a few years ago and have just like progressively built up a collection. Um, And so I've got some, I've got some ideas and some thoughts on actual card storage and card management, which I don't know whether this is the, the forum for that, but um, I've gone from, you know, starting to buy packs, like literally individual packs around shadows over Innistrad kind of era through to like buying many, many, many boxes of product and kind of cracking, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of cards at a time. Um, and yeah, at, at the moment I, uh, I'm, I'm just using BCW cardboard boxes. So BCW make all these, you know, 5,000 card storage boxes. Um, and I should probably preface that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of not an active seller, you know, like Pat is. I'm, I'm more of a collector slash enthusiast. I'll, I'll put myself in that kind of bucket. <laughs>
0: Um, You're also a great uh, card lending library for the rest of the beans, just quietly as well. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, so, someone so, provides a service. So,
0: yeah, that's right. So it's not not so much. A, I mean, we we're talking about going to a uh, a modern event, and Shorty just sends you a list. Like, like, hey, just build this for me it's like kind of come on mate surely you own your own tron lands what are you doing but it <laughs> uh, turns group out he
2: has a person like this like yeah i remember the boys wanting to borrow my suitcase one weekend because i carried everything in my suitcase and all i did was receive piles of it used to be back in the day the thing we would do is on the penny sleeve you would write they'd write p on it and that meant it was mine and mm-hmm. you just see <laughs> Like, all these cards come back into my collection with all these sleeves of peas on them, and you're just like, yep, I've lent out, like, my entire collection one weekend. uh...
0: (laughs) Oh, that's great. Every group has it,
2: so don't don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Every group has one.
0: And look, Shorty brings plenty to the table, you know, like, he does a lot of work on the the stream and the cast and and organizing things, so we'll give him a pass on, like, not actually owning a magic card, but it's... um, uh, It is is funny that, you know, it's like... What deck do I want to play? What deck do I have access to? And, you know, there'll be times like, uh, oh, yeah, Chris, I- I'm going to play this deck. I just need to borrow like a, um, you know, like this one-off card that I, you know, don't have my full play set of or I don't own any, um, you know, Urza's Sagas or I need a Cavern of Souls or something. Uh, but, uh, yeah, when you just send a – come on, Shorty. You can't just send a link to 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 goldfish meta and say build me this hey you, know, you got to really bring something to the table anyway it wouldn't be a cast without uh, a nice drive by of shorty so that was done that's good I feel good about that um so uh, Chris you've got um you've got some additional storage for some special cards as well which is you know a, a bit extra probably for uh, what a lot of people would would have um but would you recommend a uh, look anybody who's ever opened a secret layer foil uh pringle uh would you recommend having some humidity controlled cabinetry in your uh in your collection uh
1: look yeah that's that's one of my over the top Uh, purchase decisions but it's been a good one to be honest so you're kind of right like the secret layers and just there was a period look you can argue the period's ongoing of just like horrific card quality where like you would pull foils out of packs and they were pringles like literally when you opened the pack so um i i ended up getting a humidity control cabinet and they're they're the kind of cabinets you buy to put like scientific gear in or camera lenses that kind of thing and they actually work really well. Like it, it just helps to keep the humidity from fluctuating. Um, you know, when the moisture level changes, the cards can you know, curl up and crinkle significantly more. And so I've weighed down a few cards and thrown them in that cabinet and got them back nice and flush and perfectly flat. And um, and certainly a lot of my higher value foils, in particular, I now just store in there by course. It just helps to preserve them a little bit more.
0: Now, look, I I was you know uh, uh, being a bit uh, a bit cheeky there and wanted to point it out because it is a bit extra. But I will admit, while sorting cards this week, uh, building decks, my F uh DCI Mindstones. Uh, like I can't play them in a deck because they are so curled. They're clearly marked. So I kind of wish I had
2: those or Pringles. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I wish I had a cabinet like that because I love those cards, uh, you know, and I've I've played them in, you know, many decks, many commander decks, Highlander decks, KCI. And yeah, I just, I can't use them. uh, because one thing you
2: can do, you can use dehumidifiers to fix these things. And um, I've, toy with it a lot. I tried to use the ovens at the university that are used for, uh, drying out plant samples on high-end foils, like not high-end foils. I was trying old foils before, but, uh, best, best rule of thumb is if you can get a dehumidifier like you'd use for jerky. And, um, there are some instructions some videos online about it, put your cards in there. And then once they're done, take them out immediately double sleeve them. Uh, they should never taco on you again, really, because, okay. So I have one of those. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I have one of those that I use to dehydrate meals to go hiking with. So, um, yeah, maybe Keep I can... Keep mind, if ne- you
2: put them in for too long, they'll um, they'll actually taco the other way. So people tend to think of it only as a humidity issue. Too dry of a climate can also cause them to turn the other way as well.
0: Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, that is... Uh, I'll, so, maybe I'll do some research on that.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty of videos out there on the internet. But like, and once you've double-sleeved it, like a mixture of... The sleeves, like holding it in place, and Vanderval's, you know, forces, and all these other factors will will usually stop it from tacoing again. Um, okay. Weighing it down. The issue with weighting cards down, if you're not careful, is you can actually damage them. Yeah. Um, if you put you're, stuff
1: you're, on not quite centered, you'll end up bending cards regardless. So. Correct.
2: Yeah. yeah. You can you can bend cards. So I never recommend people if people have like tacoed cards, and I've had people who you know have had cards right like 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 cards taco and asked me how to handle it. I'm like I never recommend putting weight on it uh if you can get away with even some of those like those gel packs or like those those uh ones they use for humidity for like computer parts you put it in a baggie with that it'll just soak it up over time yeah the little uh, silica, uh, silica packs i've used yeah, yeah they're yeah. actually yeah. not too bad uh, uh see i use those is, is in my tackle box it.
0: to uh absorb the water <laughs> when i put yeah. the all back in the box there you go but once i've never thought about it
2: yeah. double sleeve it is the, is the key point there and never not double sleeve it from there like that's the key point. I've seen people like fix their cards and then leave them out again and like or just put a single sleeve on it. The double sleeving aspect is a really important part of keeping it from tacoing.
0: Okay. There we go. That's good advice. That's uh that's excellent. I uh I do like that um a lot. That's a uh a couple of things to try and, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, where you live uh or what your collection is. Everyone's got curly cards. Uh, I mean, those uh, Commander yeah, Legends
2: yeah. cards were so terrible. I think that's mostly when people started to look into this stuff because they went, "This is like way too far." They were the horrific. Commander Legends stuff was, I think it was peak. I mean, I think the quality has gotten a little bit better since, but the Commander Legends cards were, some of those, like, uh, well, we'll see. k stopped taking them and buy lists. They started refusing them. Um, they just refused those those foils if they were that tacoed. Uh, I remember. So, yeah.
0: I remember a modern PTQ many, many years ago where the mono red deck was one of the best decks in the format and it was playing figure of destiny and the, it was the pre-release promo. Oh, the promo one. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. And, uh, people were, you know, at the beginning of the, the event when they were registering their deck or, uh, you know, speaking to the TO and the judge to say, you know, I have a you know, a basic forest in my deck. Here are my four figure of destiny because they are so curled. They they they're clearly marked. Just like my FM Mindstones. Uh where but yeah, people just had to have it in their in their deck box with their sideboard, these four four figures, and they would bring them out when they played it. So it's like, I'm gonna tap a mountain and play this forest that I'm just gonna swap out for this curly figure. Uh, because there was a Uh, a disqualification uh, that that occurred for marked cards at another event I don't even think it was in Australia at the time but it was kind of a reaction to you know these are the only ones that people have Uh, or yeah because it was such a you know we didn't have the volume of magic cards available and the the online um, sellers people were buying things directly from their their LGS and if it wasn't in stock they didn't have it so that was all people had and yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a saga, I'll be honest. So, yeah, I remember
2: just doing it with Nexus of Fates just to be safe. Like, no, no point. They're the only foil cards in my deck. I'm just gonna always go in front of a To and get basic planes put in instead.
0: Yeah, Simple. And yeah, uh, that uh, that better safe than sorry in that sense. So there we go, another little pearl of wisdom. Uh, you know, if you if the only access to a card that you've got is a foil, and there's a risk of it. Uh, curling it's the only foil in your deck then be proactive right Uh, go to the to go to the judge and say look this is what i've got just going to let you know and you know when you play it for the first time tell tell your opponent that this is what's happened you've spoken to the to show them the curly card you're you know (laughs) your opponent will get it because uh you know they'll have collections with curly cards in it as well so that makes sense I, i i like that um The next thing I wanted to just quiz you guys about is actually parting with cards when, when it is time to, to sell. And you know, uh, Chris, you said that you're not, uh, not a prolific seller and, and Pat, you said you don't so much speculate, uh, as much as you, uh, have in the past. So maybe drawing on, uh, experiences from a few years back, but, uh, I, I put a, uh, a photo up in, uh in our discord and and on on twitter today i i caught my one-year-old uh just as she got her hands on one of the half built decks on my desk and uh two of the the top five cards happened to be a misty rainforest and a tropical island i managed to rescue them disaster averted you know like i uh, i still love my child uh but uh I did think, Oh, that's really expensive. You know, that that's, you know, up and around the realms of a thousand dollars to replace that tropical island. I paid way less than that some number of years ago. uh, And, but it's, it's value is, you know, a lot higher than that, but it kind of not at the same time, because I'm never going to sell it. Right. Because I know that I'm, you know, it's a, I'm never going to be able to afford to replace it again. So, it's a, you know, how do you actually part with those cards and how do you actually, you know, what's the mindset, you know, do you have to have that transactional mindset rather than a collection mindset? Like what, how do you do that or how did you do that back in the day, Pat?
2: Uh, well, I mean, I can like tell you, I still do speculate. It's just like, it's a different arm of the business. So I still, I have some deep specs, um, like on, on a few different cards that I just like and, and have data to support. Uh, The important thing to note, I think the biggest mistake everyone makes is they like to sell when something's dropping and buy it when it's going up, and that's just like, I don't know, like, it's like this thing that humans do when something is, like, going to the moon, they they want to, like, buy in, and when something's crashing, they want to sell, and the reality is you want to do the inverse. If something's crashing, like, why are you selling it? A, like, how close to the bottom are you, and if you miss the window, like, like, why are you selling as it's going down, like, is it going to go down further and never recover, like, what's your mindset? And oftentimes, like, I, you know, again, people will be like, oh, KCI got banned, your favorite. Uh, let's sell it. And it's like, why are you selling this? Like, now is the time when you just hold it and wait for it to rebound one day. You know, why like did you have no to do me like
0: that, Pat? Why did you have to bring that up?
2: <laughs> but, oh. but like, 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 like I said, so. That's a good example. I did that right? exact same
1: thing with, with KCIs. I literally bought them two weeks after the ban. They were like it.
2: You buy them then. That's when you buy, you buy when price. something's low, you sell when it's high. But. Uh, I think, I don't know. It's the way the human brain functions. You see it all the time. You see it in crypto. You see it in stocks. You see it in every investing category. It's like a general like rule of investing and everyone fails. Like naturally we want to go with the herd. And if FOMO the herd is the going thing, up, right? we want to-
0: FOMO, yeah.
2: FOMO, yeah. Yeah, so- it's funny.
0: I remember having a conversation with my wife about investing and, um, you know, so we, we had a little bit of savings and it's like, what should we do with this? Should we, you know, you know put off our mortgage should we you know buy some shares or something and and she was like oh people are talking about crypto and I thought about it and I went and I don't want to turn into a crypto podcast at all but I went if I've heard about it it's probably too late (laughs) so yeah so and and it turned out to be the right decision to not invest in that but yeah it's a you've got to you've got to be proactive about it a little bit don't you and
2: so so the second part of recognizing when to sell is to understand why did you buy it? What's it doing? And like, like, for example, like um, pe- people have been nuts about like ledger shredders, right? And I would tell anyone buying ledger shredders, like, great, you're buying them. Like, do you think it's going to keep going up from here? Uh, what are your risks, your pitfalls? Like to me, like for me, I, I have a, I think I've talked about this before the podcast. I have a, a sort of a proprietary uh, analytical tool I've been developing for years now And it's based on, like, my experience with crop research, where we use what we call Zadic Scale. And Zadic Scale basically allows us to go, hey, that that plant is going through anthesis, let's assign a value of 60 to it. So let's just turn uh, qualifiable data into quantifiable data. And so when I'm looking at, like, standard cards, for example, like, say, ledger shredders, to me, like, that card could still go up a bit, but there's this huge risk that, like, my system will hit me with a red flag on that says December 1st, that's the day, exit your copies because challenger deck reprints are on the horizon you know and, and it could be a four of in a challenger deck it might not be a four of in a challenger deck but if you're buying into this card and it's then a four of in a challenger deck and it goes from 35 to six like if you're going to invest you need to understand these points like why are you buying in what's the cycle where's your risk what's your reward you know and that's if you're investing, right? If you need your four Ledger shredders because you're playing Pioneer next week, well, we'll buy them at the price you need to buy them at. But from an investment standpoint, if you're investing, I want to buy 20 copies because I think it's going to make me money. Then I think one of the big issues is that people need to actually take an an investment, like like sort of mindset towards it, and understand like what like like what is the ability for this to go up and what's the ability for it to go down and and to associate numbers with those risks. And to have points at which you're going to investigate whether you should get out because like the risk is growing and, and like Ledger Shredder and Besiege you and a lot of these very good cards right now from previous set standard sets right now those are all cards that I'll be moving out of my positions on as December crawls in because I know that the risk portfolio for them to crash it becomes too great and the opportunity for future profits is not there um, so like those those are good examples of like cards that have an end life coming up on them if if you're investing in them as a player yeah like you can short them you can always sell them and then buy them back when they're cheaper if you think you want to play that game too there's a fun investment side of that but um not not advocating those particular cards to be clear just stating like though any no, they're good examples that could be in a in a reprint cycle that's very obvious that we know about like challenger decks carries a significant amount of risk like sky cave apparition went from like $12 to $3 luminarch aspirant went from $5 to 50 cents like if you want to speculate on these cards you have to understand the risk portfolio associated with them
0: absolutely and you know obviously you know we're not going to give financial advice to anybody but you know don't don't over invest don't 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 go all in uh you know only only invest what you're willing to lose right so uh it's a uh one of those things where it's a, uh, it, there is risk involved, and that's absolutely a uh, part of it. And it, and magic may be uh, safer than some other things to invest in because you know things will have some value. You know, it may be fifty cents, not five dollars, but you know there is still some value there. But it's a, uh, it, it's a risk nonetheless. So if if I was if I had um, you know a bunch of uh, cards in in my collection that I'd gone okay. Um, let's just pick a random card from you know not too long ago. Say I I bought a hundred veil vale of summers because I thought that that card's going to go through the roof, right? Whatever card insert card name here, I guess. I uh, I I'd, I'd bought them at, at at fifty cents and they're now worth you know five dollars each, and I'm like they they peaked. Uh, now's the time to cash that in. Um, so obviously Pat, you, you do, uh, uh, buy collections as, yes. and, and this, this whole podcast is not supposed to just be an ad for Josh and Pat's, but, uh, but they like sellers like yourself, um, do, do buy collections and do be wary. Cause some will give you, uh, a you know, a fair deal. Some will try to take always advantage. Always shop
2: so. around. Always shop around. Yeah. Always try, to- always try to get a few price points just to educate yourself hundred percent. I tell yeah, everyone, and- I tell anyone who sells to me, shop it around. If you, if you shop it around to get an idea of what it's worth, like it's important for you to have an idea of, of what the value of these is on the secondary market. Do yeah. Your homework. And,
0: yeah, absolutely. And you do that if you were, you know, if you were going to get your house painted, right. You know, you get a couple of quotes before you yeah, just yeah, went with the, exactly. the first person. So it's the same sort of, same sort of thing. Uh, and then, yeah, if it does come time, time to sell. Uh, uh, so Chris, have you, you, Sold some cards um, over the journey. What mechanisms have you used for that, and how, how successful have they been?
1: Yeah, so I I think it's good to uh, to understand what the like similar to what Pat was saying earlier. What the reason for the sale is. So, um, you know that there's there's an opportunity cost to holding cards, and sometimes you can sell something for what might be a substandard deal to move into something that's better to maximize you know your return or because you've got a tournament or whatever coming up. So your reason for selling cards and how you choose to sell them varies depending on the situation. But, you know, general rules, are you can obviously buy list cards to local game stores or to major retailers like card kingdom, and you're going to get a really low return, but it's effectively a guaranteed return. Um, and it's guaranteed liquidity at a low price point. And then from there, it just moves up into, um, you know, all kinds of mechanisms from direct sales, Facebook market groups, um, uh, eBay, you know, whatever it might be from there where you can sell, you know, at, at a closer to retail mark. And then you're just dealing with, you know, fees and other associated handling costs and that kind of thing as well. Um, so I, okay, I that I makes sold- sense. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so that makes sense. It's like if I was buying a new car,
0: I could list my car, I could, you know, spend my weekends dealing with, you know, tyre kickers and time wasters and, but I could get, Uh, a higher rate than if i'd just gone and traded it in at the dealer so like i could just drive in with one car and drive out with another one knowing that i'm probably leaving uh some some money on the table effectively at the cost of my time it's the same sort of thing right where if i'm willing to to go to the you know uh, to post to contact people to you know get that uh, that price point, then I, I may get a few extra dollars for my, you know, uh, hypothetical box of veil of summers. Uh, but the, well, the best the thing
2: with your box of veil of summers, uh, I, once you get that deep, you, you almost definitely need to look at by, that's a buy list. Like, I, I, yeah. I found a cop. I found 80 copies of unlicensed Hearse the other day that I forgot I had. And I put them up for sale first. And then once I had sold the initial copies, I buy listed the rest of them because i decided i'm happy to sell like i kept some around i kept i kept some on the shelf and i took a giant chunk and sent it to to a vendor buddy who wanted to buy them after retailing some but if you have like 100 of summers you most certainly are going to be buy listing some uh, in which case you're shopping on multiple buy lists and often the buy lists only take 8 to 16 copies 24 copies depending on how big of a company is sometimes they will take hundreds like ck is rare in the sense that they can take massive volume but um Oftentimes, yeah. And then the question is, do you take cash or credit, which is a very fascinating one. And that depends on how clever you are. If you're very good at what you do, you can take credit and then transition that into credit of your next spec, buy those copies while they're cheap, and then turn them into money. And that's often where, like, you see the people making big level-up kind of plays, is knowing when to get out, when to move on to the next thing. And the trick about choosing when to get out oftentimes is, do you have another investment lined up, like another thing you could be buying? And, um... Like, if you have no opportunity, Chris brought up opportunity cost. I love opportunity cost. I'm an economist at heart, so I could talk about that for hours. But, um, like, if you have a good opportunity lined up, you can take sub substandard rates on, you know, you go, oh, okay, well, this hasn't appreciated the way I want it to. But, hey, let me just move into this next thing that I have a higher degree of confidence will return more money. And so, if you have a hundred Vale of summers, yep, you're definitely going to need to buy a list. If you yeah. have four to eight, you can probably sell them yourself on a… Facebook page, um, where people like me come into the market easier is when you go, someone goes, I want, want to sell this whole giant pile of cards, and they have two of this, three of this, one's near mint, two are slightly played, there's a foil, they have a stack of a few hundred cards, it's really awkward and weird, and that's where buy listing, or buy listing, that's where selling it to like a vendor is usually becomes easier, but if you have a clean, I have one card in volume, I would argue you're probably retailing into buy listing in that order, roughly, so.
0: Okay so i i think that that's really good advice because you we've covered like pretty much the full spectrum of of collectors so i've got i've got a fat pack box uh full of you know the the fifth copy of of rares or mythics and uh some some other you know high end for me at least uh cards that uh next time i come up pat i i I might drop off to you and uh uh, see if we can come up with a deal because uh, I'm not quite sure what to do with them. I don't. I know I don't need them, and I know they've got value. Every
2: time we're supposed to come up, we somehow it ships passing in the night. There's COVID. There's something. I feel like you saw me like a year and change ago when I was mass opening Strixhaven, and then yeah, every other that's trip right. to Walgo, we've just like not been we've just not worked for for while I was supposed to come up
0: uh in June but then I got covid so yeah so uh, I I'll I'll let you know we'll be coming up in the next uh next little while it's been a, been too long since I've seen the family and uh uh I'll uh I'll, Well I'll we're we're not fully decks.
2: underwater here so um it is it is pretty wet in Wagga. Uh, North the, Wagga did indeed flood. So,
0: yeah, it's always North Wagga. It's always the other side that floods, right? But yeah, the that old Maribyrnong. And I'm yeah. up
2: on the hill, and there's a reason I'm up on the hill in Wagga. That's my choice. I have cardboard. Uh, so <laughs> exactly,
0: and seen. they curl enough on their own, right? So that's I right. don't
2: want to try to float down river in my five thousand count boxes. I think
0: they <laughs> might sink. <laughs> uh, you could build a gummy boat out of uh, out of the. Uh, excess comments that you've got so that's uh uh i'll look i'll look forward to seeing you pat that's uh but i i think we've covered like a, a fair range of topics from uh you know uh speculating to collecting to trading to to buying and, and selling and storing and a few things in between uh so thank you thank you guys for your insights uh you've got a uh, a really good handle on it and i've learned a lot so i hope our listeners have as well so uh if you uh want to hear from pat uh more regularly and get involved with uh the uh the buying and selling then you know you can pick up some bargains on, 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 an auction site, and that just might be the, the, the way to go. So, uh, head over to jpmtgbizarre.com.au. That'll take you straight to the auction page. Give them a like, uh, get bidding there. As, as Pat said, there's the, there's the claim auctions that, or the claim posts, there's the win it now posts, as well as the nightly auctions, the weekend auctions for the really spicy stuff are my favorite to look at i occasionally pick something up but uh a lot of it's a little bit out of my range but yeah, it's nice to look at uh and uh, all of that good stuff that uh Pat gave in the intro where the uh the single auctioneer and uh you know combining postage and things is uh something unique and a great service uh we've got our leaks uh which in progress ish at the moment. Uh, I, I, uh, I won one, and lost one just today. So one of my matches. So, uh, there's about, uh, half a week or so. I think it's next Monday. They, uh, group stage closes so if you want to get those played please do Uh, and then we'll be having a new league coming up and they all lead into our invitational so even if you've missed the boat on our league you can still come in get pick up some invitational points and get your seat at the table and uh eternally grateful pat for your support there and to make all of that possible uh if you want to support you guys oh we love it absolutely love it uh you make what we do uh, so much easier. So uh, myself and the entire beans community, uh, I think I speak for them when I say thank you. Uh, If you do want to support the beans in other ways, the best way to support us is to support Josh and Pat's. But uh, if you want to support us directly, uh, we do have a uh, a merch store. Uh, If you head over to magicbeanscast.com, all of our links to all of our socials, uh, our Twitch and our, our merch store are there. Uh, you can check us out there on Twitter at MagicBeanscast as well. Uh, Pat, do you have any socials apart from the Facebook page you'd like to have a shout out for or any no, any local play groups?
2: I am a boomer. Uh, I guess I would like to say if anyone has any additional questions about good old magic finance related talk, uh, just just ping me in the Magic Beans Discord, like maybe I can. Open uh, an AMA or something after this uh, podcast goes live if anyone wants to ask any additional questions we didn't cover.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great suggestion. And uh, the link to the Discord, if you're not already there, is, uh, will be in the show notes. And that is how you get in on all of our events as well. So please uh, jump on there and get involved. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Chewy MTG And Chris? I am at Polywaffle MTG fantastic. Uh, That concludes our hashtag MTG finance uh, episode. Thanks very much, guys. Uh, It's been a blast. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody, and stay safe out there. We'll see you next time on the Magic Beans cast.